Good evening. Uh, welcome everybody to this uh, shoulder webinar. Uh, I would like to thank APCAS to share with us, with ISACOS, this uh, unique event. Uh, with a global view, uh, with a four continent approach, ISACOS and APCAS uh, will uh, discuss about the challenges and the possible solutions for, for posterior shoulder instability. We are very lucky to have uh, Dr. Patrick Yang from Hong Kong, China as our moderator. We have a very distinguished uh, faculty panel with Dr. Junjan Jian from Beijing, China, Dr. Giovanni Di Giacomo from Rome, Italy, Dr. Ivan Wong from Halifax, Canada, and uh, last but not least, Dr. Chanakan Pornputfukul from Thailand, the current APCAS president. Thank you so much uh, for sharing with us this event. Patrick? Hi, um, thank you, uh, Dr. Gunumo Ase. Right? Um, hi, everybody. Um, very nice to see all of you again. Um, so I'm Patrick Young on behalf of the APCAS to moderate these sections with Dr. Gunumo, right? Uh, you know, APCAS and ISACOS has been very devoted to keep all the orthopedic sports medicine surgeons all around the world to be well connected and, and to learn and share with one another. That's why we're here today. So uh, before we uh, start the webinar, I would just like to, um, to tell all the audience about some of the housekeeping rules, right? First of all, um, there is a simultaneous translation between English and Chinese both way in this uh, webinar. So you can choose either listening to English or Chinese. It's all up to you, right? And secondly, um, during the presentations of all the speakers, you can type in your Q&A, type in your questions in the Q&A box so that um, we, all the speakers and panelists, will try to answer your questions after their talk, right? And of course, uh, after all the speakers making their presentation, we will have another Q&A sessions to answer some important questions. So um, I hope um, all of you enjoy this uh, webinar. So without further delay, I would like to introduce our first speaker, which is essentially the same, the moderator, uh, uh, Dr. Guillermo Ase, one of the vice presidents of ISACOS, to give the first talk. His talk is about arthroscopic posterior labor repair, almost one size fits all. So, Dr. Ase. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, my topic today will, will we share with you some uh, concepts about posterior capsular labral repair for PSA. Uh, this is my financial disclosure, uh, which has no impact in this presentation. PSI have some uh, characteristics. Uh, is frequently seen in athletes with a sports swing in forward flexion and internal rotation. It can be a collision or non-contact sports. And in distinction with the anterior instability, many times the patient uh, suffers an unstable and painful shoulder without subluxations, but not with subluxation, uh, sorry about that, but uh, without any real dislocation. Therefore, my goal today will be talk about diagnosis and surgical technique of labrum reconstruction in a PSI patients without critical bone loss or excessive glenoid retroversion and without soft tissue general laxity, MDI, because my colleagues after uh, myself will uh, approach those topics. So uh, 
the bone uh, defect will be addressed, but I will talk about the patients without any problem, without any critical bone loss. Uh, the first thing we need to know is to uh, know the, the main instability direction. We need to define if there is unidirectional instability with the Baton score, the symptomatic position in anterior elevation plus abduction and internal rotation. We use the uh, posterior test, the drawer test, the jerk load and shift test, and the Kim test. And we rule out any MDI uh, component with the sulcus and gagate test. As you can see in this video, the posterior uh, drawer test is, is very important. We classified in one plus, two plus, or three plus. In this case, it's three plus. And the jerk test, where the examiner put the uh, arm in forward flexion and internal rotation, and the head subluxates posteriorly, and then it's a, it's a jump, it's a shift. Uh, out of the joint and then in, into the joint. Uh, this uh, examination should be done awake, knowing patient's symptoms and history, and uh, under general anesthesia, like you can see uh, uh, on the video on the right, where you have an engaging Hillsatch lesion. Uh, regular x-rays, sometimes the, the axillary view or the vernacle view, you can see a slope at the glenoid, and the MRI shows the uh, posterior labrum tear. The 3D CT scan is quite important to uh, evaluate the, the bone defects. Uh, I, I think to, for atroscopic treatment, you, you need to to be below the critical bone loss. And, and we used to ask the uh, 3D CT scan with the bone separates in order to evaluate the bone loss uh, better. It's very important to know the version of the glenoid. There are two main uh, 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 modalities to, to take the angles. The one is the classical uh, described by Freeman when you take into account the whole body of the scapula on the left, and the, the, the other one is just to take the glenoid vault uh, below the coracoid level, be, be, below the equator. Uh, this can be done uh, with the MRI or the CD scan. The normal values for general population is about uh, one to three degrees of uh, retroversion on the glenoid side and 26 on the humeral side. For the operation, the surgical technique, our preferred position is the lateral decubitus position to get uh, access to the posterior inferior capsule and to get the best angle to uh, deliver the anchors at the posterior inferior part of the glenoid. You can see this right shoulder with the lesion at the posterior um, uh, inferior part of the shoulder. We uh, release the labrum then we uh, deliver the, the wire, the knitting or wire, uh, and then we put some uh, cinches. Uh, we put one, two or three cinches uh, at the beginning. Uh, I think the, the knotless technology, uh, putting the suture first and the anchors then, or the new ones with tensionable, adjustable uh, anchors are much better, but knotless is, is good for posterior because it's a lot of contact between the humeral head and the posterior labrum. So it's more important than not less technology for posterior than for anterior repair. This is the anchor 
and this is the, the final uh, labor repair. And uh, usually we would close the uh, portal uh, with a suture passer. We pass the, the knitting of wire and, and we put a, a suture to close, totally close the capsule. I think to close the capsule in these cases uh, is, is quite important. The post-operative period in neutral uh, rotation and the, the control healing of the posterior labrum at the MRI. There are many, many papers talking about this uh, problem, the arthroscopic repair. I think that the, uh, the other faculty will talk about the more challenging situation, but the normal situation in unidire unidirectional posterior shoulder instability is a very successful arthroscopic operation. Uh, we published, just published in the Latin American Journal, 18 cases of uh, unidirectional, very selected patients uh, with only a posterior shoulder instability with 90% return to play. Finally, this year, everything is taken away and, and uh, patient selection is once again key to succeed. Uh, I think that in the best available evidence, the glenoid bone loss less than 15% or the glenoid retroversion uh, less than uh, 10 degrees uh, are defined as not critical. In these scenarios, the arthroscopic capsular labrum repair is very successful operation with 90% of success and return to play. We talk about all these topics in the ISACOS Shoulder Committee. And uh, I think the ISACOS Shoulder Committee is a very good place to, uh, to be. There are many, many smart people and, and very well-known uh, surgeons all around the world. Perhaps we need uh, more people from Asia Pacific, more influence of APCAS. Uh, but it's a great place to discuss all this uh, pathology. We invite you to share with us our next Congress next November. It's going to be November 21 in Cape Town. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gunnar. A beautiful demonstration, beautiful repairing. Um, so um, uh, for all the audience, if you have questions, you can type in the Q&A box, not in the chat box, right? Okay, so um, I would like to introduce the second speakers, um, which is uh, our EPCAS president, Chanakan. So, um, so everybody know about him uh, from Thailand. He's going to talk about the management of humeral bone defect in posterior shoulder instability. So um, Chanakan, your turn, thanks. Okay. Uh, okay, uh, first, uh, thank you very much for an introduction and uh, on behalf of the uh, APCAS president, I would like to thank you, the uh, ISACOS, for having this uh, opportunity to continue our, our education during this COVID period. I think this is very important. And uh, my talk will talk on the human bone defect management. Uh, my name is Chanakan and I come from Thailand. Uh, I have nothing to disclose uh, during this talk, for this talk. I'm a past president of the Asian uh, Society for Sports Medicine and Arthroscopy, president of APCAS and president-elect for Thailand Orthopedics uh, Sports Medicine Societies. So before we proceed, we have to understand that uh, not all the posterior shoulder dislocated cases are the same. There are two different groups of the patients. First, the group who receive trauma, and another group is the patient who suffer from repetitive injuries. On your left is a case who had an unstable shoulder from motorcycle accident. We will touch that 
later, like a main thing for my talks. The other patient is a lucky player with the hypermobilities who received a repetitive trauma. This group uh, was uh, very well described by Guillermo on the first talk, and here are the list of pathologies. Usually, we have nothing to do with the uh, humeral head. Let's focus on the group of traumatic dislocation. Once a dislocation occurs, it usually produced bipolar mm -hmm. lesions, just like the anterior dislocation, mm -hmm. and part of them are unstable after cost reduction. On the crinoid side, we experience the pathology uh, starting from labor tear, so-called reverse bankard lesion to bony bankard lesion. On the humeral side, there was a report of the revert heel sac lesion up to 86%. This lesion has more extensive articular damage compared to conventional heel sac lesion because the, there's no bare area here. I classify this lesion into two types. First, avulsion. And the second is the compression, as you can see from these cases. Start with avulsion type. You see these two cases. Both are traumatic posterior dislocation, but they are different. The first case, you see the humeral head line against the adrenal rim. You see bone fragment just anterior to the uh, humeral head. The CT show avulsion of lesser tuberosity. After cross reduction, then you can proceed to fix the lesser tuberosity in any how you prefer. Either screws or anchors, you can do it. Uh, open or arthroscopic is up to your preference. In the second case, if you can notice, there are a big gap between humeral head and the crinoid. The CT looks like the lesser tuberosity is entrapped. Better information with the MRI show that there's the continuity of the lesser tuberosity to the infraspinatus. The whole rotator cuff footprint peel off from the humeral head and create the butterhole condition. You should not try cross reduction in this case, since it is reusable. This video I just show my follow and resident shortly that is impos it's impossible to do reduction even under general anesthesia. So we did open reduction for a button hole. We had to open rotator interval to reduce the uh, humeral head. We repair the rotator cuff back using suture anchors and trying arches or double road fixation. And here is the final pictures of the repair and post-operative X-ray. For the compression type, after close reduction, when the shoulder is uh, unstable, we need to address both renal and humeral uh, side. On the humeral side, the decision of the choice of the treatment is based on the degree of the damage. There's no clear numbers on the scientific evidence, but we usually divide around 20-25% and 40-50% and somewhere there. I show, show you a case of a male, 48 years old. He had a motorcycle accident, shoulder unstable after cross reduction. The MI show as a picture, as you can see, the reverse heel shaft is not that big. And you can see there's a reverse bony bank vision right here. So this is uh, what we did. We look from the uh, superior view. We repair the posterior labral using the suture anchor. 
this thing are uh, in traumatic case and it's slightly different from the uh, repetitive uh, dislocation because in acute case most of the time you don't have to placate the posterior capsule what you did you just repair the uh, labral back to where it was before so i start with the first anchor and stitch it from the back and i tie the uh, label down so after i tie the uh, the first anchor you see the the bony bank card the reverse bony bank card had been reduced but anyway the it's still not adequate so we add another anchor and we repair the uh, label back and this is the final pictures after repair you can see the uh, bony bank card has been well reduced then we access the humeral head lesion looks like it's almost uh, engaged since the patient have a history of block dislocation so we decided to do arthroscopic McLaughlin procedure to start with uh, you debride the rotator interval the good thing doing this because you can access the intra extra uh, portion of the shoulder from the uh, only one portal you don't need to go sub me to tie the uh, the notch down like like the uh, lymphocyte procedure then you start to uh, take down some bone to refresh the footprint you put the anchor I prefer to use the uh, screw in type anchor since the bone is sometimes soft almost just like the rotator cuff then with the equipment you have you stitch it back use the uh, tendon printators and stitch the uh, I mean, subscapularis back this is a picture before tying then you look over the superior border of the subscap and you can tie the knot down and then this you can see the the uh, subscapularis tendon is reduced and uh, it's fill the cap on the humeral head and the x-ray show a well reduced shoulder another case is a lady are who had an accident and misdiagnosed as a frozen shoulder and it was a four months old injury before i saw her the ct showed no significant bone loss on the crinoid this mri picture show a significant bone loss on the humerus it's around 30 percent uh, uh someone will talk about how to uh, measure the uh bone loss on the humerus later on this uh, webinars so even it, it was a four months old but the shoulder is still reducible see this after uh, general anesthesia I can reduce the shoulder, shoulder but very unstable so the video on the right is about I repair the posterior label I'm gonna skip that and show you these pictures the right picture that show that the posterior label has been repaired but this still left us a big uh, reverse heel circulation this is very big it's, as it's engaged for sure so how should we deal with this to do macroscopic McLaughlin procedure I believe this lesion is too big for doing that procedure and of course she is too young for autoplasty this left us two options which are allograft 
and lesser tuberosity transfer, transfer pass and minus the rotational osteotomies. So after I fix the posterior label, I tilt her down to supine. We did the entry approach and I obtained a freestyle allograph from oh, our female next practical patient that we have every day in my hospitals. We fixed the uh, female hip allograph to the defect using the two small tensor screw and bury the screw head using the countersink technique. She was followed up for five years. She had good range of motion and the x-ray showed no resorption of the graph. So this is the guideline uh, to treat the human head defect in posterior shoulder and stabilities. For the unstable shoulder with the reverse heel sack less than 25%, I prefer to do arthroscopic McLaughlin procedure. With the bigger region, I prefer to use an allograph. I think that is the best option since it recreates the normal anatomy. Anyway, if you don't have an allograph, you still can do lesser tubulosity transfer or do a derotational osteotomy as the options. In chronic lock dislocation more than six months with extensive articular damage in elderly best treated with arthroplasty. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, um, Chanakat, right? Uh, beautiful demonstrations of uh, how to do a McGrathin as well as the posterior bone grafting of the humeral head. So, um, yes, uh, good. So I would like to introduce the first speakers. So um, a good friend from Italy, uh, Dr. Giovanni Dacacomo. Um, he's going to talk about open posterior greenoid bone block. So Giovanni, your turn. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, my friends. For me, it's an honor to share uh, your and my knowledge today with you. My goal is uh, to speak about uh, the posterior glenoid bone loss. To understand the pathology, we need to understand the anatomy, the functional anatomy, the biomechanics. The stability of the shoulder at side is guaranteed, as you can see in this video, through the negative intra-articular pressure. But very important is to know that when we speak about glenohumeral stability, we have to pay attention which are the structures that guarantee the stability in the middle range of motion. In the middle range of motion, the stability, according to Ishitoi study, is guaranteed through the concavity compression. It means that you need a good conformity, a good uh, platform anatomy of the glenoid. This is true for anterior and posterior stability. So keep in mind that muscle control and uh, glenoid anatomy is the key point in mid-range uh, stability. At the, range, at the end range of stability is guaranteed through the ligament. So in the mid-range are very important muscle control, and the glenoid anatomy. It means that if we have bone loss in anterior instability or posterior instability, it's a treble. It's very important to quantify the glenoid bone loss. We did some interesting study regarding the anterior instability. And we think that we have always to keep in mind the interplay between humeral head glenoid, uh, humeral head bone loss, like the reversal sacs in posterior instability and the posterior glenoid bone loss. 
So we have not only to study the bone loss on the head, but we have always to study the interplay in anterior instability and in posterior instability, the interplay between heel sucks lesion and reverse heel sucks lesion, irreversible lenoid bone loss when we speak about posterior instability. So in posterior instability, we get a reverse bunk heart lesion, but very important is also to be able to quantify the posterior glenoid bone loss, but not alone with its interplay between the humeral head bone loss. I mean the reverse Ilsacks lesion. We know very well that uh, if we have a failure of the conservative treatment, of course the arthroscopic uh, reverse bunker repair works very well. And from biomechanical study, we know very well that if you perform a good reverse bunker repair and supplication, as you can see here, of course, you gain a good stability, a good posterior stability too. The problem is that when we miss some bone on the humeral head and on the glenoid. So the question is when we need to graft the posterior glenoid. Usually when arthroscopy fails, or most of the time when posterior bone loss is more than 15, 20%. But it's very important to keep in mind that we have to consider the bone block augmentation procedure to back up a soft tissue procedure. That is very important, the meaning of backup. And always keep in mind, we have to remember that the quality and the thickness of the posterior ligaments is smaller, is much more weakened than the anterior one. Which is the science behind the interplay between reverse heel sucks and posterior glenoid bone loss? As I told you, we introduced more than 10 years ago the on-track, off-track lesion regarding the anterior instability. But very intelligently, Dr. Moroder applied this concept to the posterior instability through an angle concept. We did a direct measure, and he did the measure through the angle. He introduced an angle that is the gamma angle. The gamma angle, like you can see in this video, is an angle that is between the pulley and the most posterior part of the reversal sacs. Then you have to note the reversal sacs, and this is the gamma angle. This is very important. The gamma angle is an angle between the pulley and the most medial part of the reversal sacs. This is the gamma angle. The second important angle is the delta angle. It's the blue one. Why this is, is very important because these show you, through this measure, the achievable internal rotation. So we have on the axial view with the CT, with the MRI, two angles, the gamma angle and the delta angle. When the gamma angle is inferior to 90 degrees, of course, we can have a good internal rotation. But look what happened to the heel sacs, to the reverse heel sacs. Like in the interior, the more medial heels, the extension of the heel sacs, in this case of the reverse heel sacs, the more dangerous it is. Why? 
because of course we have a bigger gamma angle and for this reason we have a smaller delta angle. And you can see that the more middle he is, the reversal sucks, the more possibility you have during the internal rotation to engage the anterior reversal sacs with the posterior glenoid. So two angles, gamma and delta angle. What happens if we have a posterior glenoid bone loss? If we have posterior glenoid bone loss for one millimeters, we miss 2.3 degree of delta angle. So we have more possibility that because the posterior glenoid bone loss in internal rotation, we have an engaging of the reversal sacs. And of course, the bigger is the posterior glenoid bone loss, the bigger is the medial extension of the gamma angle, the more I have a bone instability in posterior instability. So the concept of these two angles is very, very important to detect the interplay between the reversal sacs and the posterior glenoid bone loss. You can see this video. This is the pulley, this is the uh, reversal sacs. You have to measure the two angles, the gamma angle, the delta angle. The delta angle is very important. Is the blue one that gives you an idea of how many degrees you can internally rotate your arm. These measures from moroder gamma delta angle are very important and I always to advise according to the surgery that you are going to perform. And of course, is one of the main indication to an anterior or posterior approach in posterior instability. Another paper very interesting is the one from Matt Provencer that he and his team, they did the characterization of the posterior glenoid bone loss. They tried to measure through the valve middle the glenoid valve uh, version that is very important. You have to look at the tip of the valve that is point A, point B is the level of the uh, glenoid rim and you can measure the retroversion of the glenoid. The critical point seems to be a number around 15. Very interesting from Provencer is another study where they have measured the slope of the posterior osseous defect. Very interesting. There is a difference between anterior glenoid bone loss in anterior instability and posterior glenoid bone loss. In anterior instability, the bone loss is straight. There is a, a more or less, there are more or less 90 degrees between the glenoid and the, the scapular neck. In the posterior instability, there are no 90 degrees, but there is something like a slope that is around 25, 40 degree of posterior slope. And this is important because when we perform a graft in anterior instability of the latarge, it seems to be easier. The more bone loss you have, the more stride is the glenoid bone loss with the glenoid platform. It's very easy. You can see that there are exactly 90 degrees between the bone loss and the glenoid platform. This keep this kind of surgery relatively easy, but in anterior approach. So when you treat with bone graft your patient with the posterior approach, you have always to keep in mind that there is a slope and the surgery maybe is a little different from the anterior one. Also regarding uh, the, the position of the bone loss, the bone loss in posterior instability is between six and eight o'clock. 
And uh, very important is that the bone loss is not parallel to north-south of the glenoid, but there is an inclination of 30 to 35 degrees. Glenoid version is very important. We have always to check if uh, is uh, a, a glenoid version that is missing because of trauma or dysplasia. This is uh, important because according to this, if there is a glenoid version that is more than 15, 20 degree, and uh, you are treating a traumatic patient, you can have this kind of approach. Of course, our patient is prone, you need to perform a vertical-oriented skin incision over the glenoid. And very important is uh, to perform a, a split between the most lateral and most posterior and medial part of the deltoid. You have to reach the infraspinatus, like the subscarp anteriorly. It's very elegant to perform a split, but keep in mind that the capsula here is very thin. Then you have to perform a capsulotomy on the middle side, like a T. And very important is that to have a graft that usually is 25, 20 millimeters in length, and we have to debride immediately to the glenoid more or less one centimeters. And of course, you can place your graft with use of two candlelighted skew. This is very important when you are treating a posterior glenoid bone loss. But when you are treating a dysplasia, is a completely different animal and you need to perform a different kind of surgery. And if you give a look to the international literature, the results uh, treating with this approach, uh, that is a neostotomy, the posterior dysplasia, the results at uh, 18, 20 years are not so good. We have more than 50, 60% of failure. This is a picture uh, before the surgery in a posterior dysplasia, and this is the results after the osteotomy. Of course, the approach is the same, but you, not, you don't need to uh, correct the length of the uh, glenoid, but you need to perform an osteotomy. You have to put a piece of bone, and uh, you have to pay attention not to pass through the anterior cortical of the glenoid. Otherwise, uh, you can have a fracture of the glenoid that in few months can lead your patient to osteoarthritis. But Always remember that the results in a glenoid osteotomy when you have a posterior dysplasia are not so excellent. Better are the results when you have a glenoid bone loss and you treat this patient through a posterior approach, open posterior approach with a graft that improves the length from anterior to posterior and the concavity of the platform. Very important, and this is a good occasion when you perform this kind of surgery open, because remember that the quality of the posterior capsula is much different from the anterior one, so you can perform a shift, so you can reinforce, like an open bunker repair posteriorly, you can reinforce the weak posterior capsula. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Giovanni. Um, very clear demonstrations of the biomechanics of uh, posterior shoulder instability. And, and we all remember your good work with uh, EG Toy on the bipolar lesions. Now you apply all this concept in the posterior instability. So excellent, right? So, um, so for all the audience, please make sure that if you have any questions, just drop in the Q&A box. Our expert will try to answer one by one. So we have seen the beautiful demonstration of Giovanni on the open bone grafting of the green noise. Now it turns to uh, Ivan, right? Ivan Wong from Canada. So he's going to 
tell you a bit about his work on arthroscopic posterior phenoid bone block surgery. So Ivan, your turn. Thank you very much, Patrick. Um, so we'll go over uh, arthroscopic treatment for shoulder instability with posterior uh, bone loss using allograft bone. These are my disclosures. So by the end of this presentation, you'll be better able to describe the literature available for arthroscopic posterior bone grafting. We'll go over the arthroscopic technique for bone grafting. We'll go over a couple videos on that and then go over the early outcomes of this technique. Most of these papers talking about arthroscopic bone grafting are really level four and, uh, and technique papers. So this is a technique paper following 15 patients uh, from Pascal Boileau that we know. Followed for about a year, he says that he gets no recurrence and gets significant improvement in his Rose score. Most importantly, he finds it safe with no complications. In this case, he's fixing them with suture anchors, both through the bone graft as well as fixing the bank heart, uh, sorry, the posterior labrum behind it. This is a technical note that uses a uh, posterior pediculated bone block um, from the acromion. And they talk about using a hammock approach with a deltoid flap, doing this like an open slash arthroscopic assist. This is from LaFosse's group. Again, 19 patients, level four study, followed for 20 months using iliac crest bone graft with screws instead of suture anchors. What he found was we're using iliac crest, they all heal, but you still have some patients with persistent pain. And when you use screws, some of these patients or two of these patients, so about 10% of them required screw removal, which is similar to the anterior bone loss that he has done. This is probably the largest series that's out there. So this is a 24 patients followed for 26 months. They found a recurrence rate with this posterior bone block technique having 12%. Their WOSI scores have improved significantly but this shows that there's more than half of these patients required revision surgery for screw removal. Most of these patients had some kind of resorption in there, but again, uh, most patients did get significantly better in terms of their recurrence rate. We've also already mentioned the, the kind of the algorithm for treating this. So again, Preventure's algorithm really describes that anyone with more than 10% bone loss is when you want to start considering using some kind of bony augment in the back. So why arthroscopic? Well, we already just saw an excellent presentation, all the diagrams and videos showing how to do an open posterior approach. But doing a posterior approach is much more, uh, um, um, uh, much larger than doing an anterior approach to the shoulder. So doing it arthroscopically allows us hopefully to be able to see better, to be able to address other associated injuries inside the shoulder and hopefully make it more minimally invasive and faster to heal. So to do this, I usually do everything lateral to cubis. I find it easier to hold the scope because the best visualization is represented in the blue line here, which is the anterior superior portal for visualization. And then you would have both the anterior inferior working from the front, as well as your posterior portal working from the back to gain access to this posterior bone loss. The first step is to debride from the posterior labrum from the anterior inferior portal. This crosses the glenoid and allows you to get the best access to that posterior labrum. Next, you redirect the posterior portal underneath this labrum that we've created and elevated up. We then enlarge the posterior portal, so either with a channel dilator or something larger, and then you can prepare the bone graft. Now, my preference is to use an allograft bone because I can prepare this on the back table, but using iliac crest is exactly the same thing. We, we use a, a retractor from the anterior portal to lift up the labrum and then insert the graft from the posterior portal 
fixate it with two screws and then repair a posterior bank art on top of that. So how does this look? Well, this is a view from the anterior superior portal. This is a right shoulder. So to the right-hand side, this is the posterior labrum. This already had previous surgery in here. They already had a posterior labral repair that unfortunately has failed. And mainly because there was bone loss behind that wasn't recognized at the time. So first thing you saw that, uh, that elevator probe extending from the anterior portal, elevating that labrum. That's a better angle to get rid of that. Now we can measure the glenoid from front to the back. And we know that most adult males have somewhere around 30 millimeters of bone from anterior to posterior. Again, you can use a 3D model to be able to measure that. We had redirected this, the, the posterior portal underneath that labrum and then decorticated the bone. And we really wanted to have bleeding bone here, marrow signal to be able to allow for uh, allograft to heal. With that same portal, we can direct that uh, uh, a double barrel cannula with the bone graft to the exact same portion or exact same space that we use for cleaning out that posterior glenoid as well as uh, microfracturing that area. And once we get that, that bone graft in the right place, we can put these two cannulated screws and watch them very carefully to make sure they're in the right place. And with arthroscopy, you can see you get a very good visualization to make sure that bone graft is perfectly parallel to the glenoid and it's not going to impinge or wear. You see all that glenoid or that all that humerus uh, cartilage damage. That's really because if you have recurrent dislocations afterwards, they continue to get arthritis, which is why we don't want them to have uh, continued dislocation after you have uh, uh, the first time. Here, we're just repairing the posterior labrum back on top of this graft, keeping the graft extra articular and reinforcing that posterior capsule and labrum. So our case series here, so far we've looked at our patients. We've had nine patients undergo this, and most of them are male. Average age at surgery was 33. Most were left-sided, surprisingly. Uh, but the glenoid AP dimensioned was 19% bone loss when we measured from anterior to posterior. And average follow for our patients right now is three and a half years. We found our Wolsey scores improved significantly. So pre-op Wolsey of 72 and lower scores are better, post-op at 17.9. So significantly improved uh, after surgery. Our screw alpha angles were 15 degrees. So uh, compared to the glenoid face, which makes it uh, uh, adequate fixation. And our post-operative AP glenoid dimension was back up to 30. So that reconstructs the normal size of the glenoid that we wanted uh, pre-operatively. Our graft position was very good. None were lateral because we were doing it arthroscopically. Most were flush and some were just a millimeter medial uh, because of the cartilage in there. Most of these patients had, uh, had good healing, but there is some resorption. However, the final air space of that glenoid was normal at the end. So most likely we put in too large a piece uh, before. We found excellent safety profile, no intraoperative complications, neurovascular injuries or adverse events. All patients were uh, stable. Again, these are only nine patients at final follow-up. We didn't have to remove any screws and there's no arthropathy as of yet. So these are some examples. This is a pre-op CT scan. You can see a 3D reconstruction on phase view compared to a two week. This person did have a fall. So had a, uh, a, a CT scan two weeks afterwards. So you can see where the positioning is. Another version of this is a pre-op on the left, a post-op, two-year post-op on the right. You can see the remodeling of bone and how it heals back in there. And again, another two-year follow-up of pre and post, and this one had both anterior and posterior labor repair. So you can see where the suture anchors were afterwards. So again, how does this look? This, is, uh, this patient here had an A to P dimension of the glenoid of 24 millimeters, so significant uh, uh, six millimeters of bone loss, uh, 18% or 15% bone loss. We elevate that labrum from the anterior inferior portal. That gives you the best access to be able to take this tissue up to be able to visualize this. 
Now you can see we redirected our cannula underneath this labrum to be able to do the rest of the debridement on that glenoid face. We really want to get down to healthy bleeding bone. We use a burr to do this. We use a, uh, a, a microfracture pick to do this because we really need healing bone so you can get good remodeling of this allograft or the iliac crest back onto the native glenoid. Once we have that all done, we expand that cannula, expand that, uh, that, that uh, portal to be able to insert this bone graft. And this one you can see, we actually uh, put it on upside down. We put the articular side of that uh, distal tibia on the bottom surface. So we see the cancellous section. Here you see the switching stick above that. So we use that to lever it up because it's very difficult to see underneath that labrum. It's actually very tight in there. It's different from the anterior position. And then you can repair this labrum. This is a primary uh, uh, fixation. So they didn't have a previous labor repair. So this is much better tissue. You can see we can repair that labrum, get a good, nice bumper fixation on top of that graft. And again, that uh, I tend to tie knots. So I'd be able to hold this in the right place. We want the knots to be away from the articular surface. And then again, uh, we've already seen from uh, Guillermo how to do that posterior uh, capsular closure uh, to be ho hopefully able to uh, have soft tissue to augment that repair. So we've shown you here that posterior bony augmentation is minimally invasive. It can help to restore bony anatomy, allows for soft tissue repair and tensioning, has an excellent safety profile. It has promising clinical, functional, and radiographic results, but it does need longer-term follow-up. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ivan. Um, very good um, uh, demonstration on the arthroscopic um, bone grafting of the uh, green knot. So, um, um, so you may like to answer some of the questions just put up on the Q&A box. So last but not least, uh, we have um, our friends, uh, Chen Yan, Zhang Chen Yan, Professor Zhang Chen Yan from um, Beijing. So he's going to talk about the posterior instability and MDI, multidirectional instability. So Chen Yan, are you ready? The, um, the posterior shoulder instability can uh, be categorized by the unidirectional or congenital or voluntary. So I'm going to talk about the uh, one of the components of MDI, the one part of the MDI was the uh, posterior session of the instabilities. So when you are uh, judging that whether this is unidirectional or is a multidirectional or part of the MDIs, that there are several clues that uh, you can suggest that it is not unidirectional. Sometimes there's, in the history, there's no minor trauma. There's generalized laxity. And then on the MRI or MRAs, you can see a very large capsule and patchless capsule. And also for physical examinations, you can see very severe sulcus and inferior translation, even in abduction uh, of the, uh, the shoulder joint. So MDI and hyperlaxity is a very different situation. And one is, uh, a normal physiological position as a hyperlaxity and MDI is a very pathological. They can be, you know, they are, they are normally be seen together and according to the literature, up to nearly 80% that the MDI combined with hyperlaxity. But in rare cases, you can also see MDI without hyperlaxities. So what is hyperlaxity? So there's a lot of definition of hyperlaxity. And I think personally that the Christian Gerber in 1988 have the best definition of hyperlaxity. And, it, and he described it as a constitutional, but not pathological. And it could be a risk factor for instability, both anterior and posterior. And it does not prevent lesion after trauma. And this is the Baton score that we're all very familiar with. And the general lactic, this is the normal, uh, you know, teenage girl 
that uh, is not pathologically MDI patient, but you can see that the, um, the hyperlax, uh, a lot of joints, not only the shoulder, but also the elbow and the interphalagian joint. So the diagnosis of a posterior instability as a part of the MDI is very similar to the MDI. That means that you can judge from the history. There's usually no trauma and uh, physical examination is very important. You gotta address or diagnose every directions. The patient may present it with you, the posterior instability with the chief complaint. But if you're uh, doubted or you're suspicious of an MDI patient, uh, apart from the jerk test or the Kim test, you need to check also the anterior apprehension test and an inferior laxity or inferior instability test, like the sulcus and the gaggies that uh, proposed by the French surgeons. And if you can do MRA, that you can see a very huge patch with patchless capsule. And during the diagnosis, although it's very rare, but be aware that the collagen disease is not that rare, especially the Ehlers-Danlos. Uh, syndrome. And um, I've seen about two to three cases in my, in my career for the past nearly 30 years, but it happens. Sometimes uh, the collagen disease patients can present in really uh, formidable uh, presentations. They have uh, other problems uh, like uh, blood vessels or bleeding problems. So these kind of patients, you got to be very, very careful and they can have a very high complication rate and fatal rate. The treatment of posterior instability combined with MDI is pretty similar with the MDIs, and always rehab them first. But surgery is not in a priority treatment uh, for these kind of patients, unless the patient is painful or very uncomfortable after very strict uh, conservative uh, uh, sessions of, of a therapist and unresponsive. And that then it's time that you gotta discuss with the patient about the surgery. About the rehabs is usually uh, doing with the internal and external rotation strengthening and the uh, prioroception training is very critical. The scapular rhythm training with some really professional therapists sometimes can help. And I mean, like 50% of the time can help these kind of uh, posterior instability patients with the MDIs in my hand. And uh, the European surgeons, some of them, uh, they have an early report about muscle triggering therapy using the, uh, the electrodes to trigger the muscle. It's like the taping or, or helping uh, the patient to regain some of the rhythm of a certain muscles around the posterior region of the shoulder to improve the scapular rhythm and paraception uh, functions in this, in this case scenario. And the, about surgical treatment, what I can say is that we should be very careful when choosing surgery for these kind of patients. And these, pa these patients are MDI patients with, uh, with a chief complaint of posterior, but these kind of patients also have anterior part or inferior part. And um, if you want to do the surgery, you need to address all the directions. So for that, the preoperative physical examination seems very critical. You got to know which direction, what, what, how many directions you have, for this kind of patient. And what about external instability? Some patients will have a very large posterior translation, but still like to small to medium anterior translation. And if you don't do that in a very balanced way, you only tighten up the posterior part. And then after surgery, 
unsymptomatic anterior instability would be magnified by, 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 by your surgery, which is contracted the posterior tissues pretty much. So you're iatrogenically produced an anterior instability. So that's is one of the dilemmas. And the other dilemmas for these kind of patients is, this is very contradictory because these patients are so used to their laxity. Although if you do a very successful surgery and you keep the, the stability of the joint and there's no symptoms or signs of instability, sometimes the patient came back and complained about a rigid or, 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 or a limited range of motion because they're so accustomed in the past of their lives, in, in, in the former time of the life before the surgery for that laxity. And suddenly after surgery or about a couple of months after surgery, he found a lot of motion that he, not, he, cannot re, he or she cannot reach. So that sometimes bothers the patient. So that's the dilemma between the stability and range of motion loss. And also there's another dilemma for these kind of patients that the MDI patients have a, a fairly high, higher uh, failure rate than a unidirectional. Like in surgery, you can, you can do the plication, you can shrink the volume of the capsule or the glenohumeral joint pretty well, but with the time goes by, the lacks they regain or relapse, and they are loosened up again. So this is one of the difficult situations with these kind of patients. And that's why I said that choosing a surgical treatment for these kind of patients, you got to be very careful about it. There's some kind of basic uh, the histological studies uh, by Rodeo uh, in the 1980s that show that in an MDR or instability patients, their, their collagen and, and elastic fibers are very different from normal capsules. And that might explain why they have a higher relapse of, uh, of capsule laxity after surgery. So the options that the, in the very early uh, old ages, we do, uh, like Ivan just said, um, I'm sorry, like um, Giacomo said that it opened a, a capsular shift. And later on with astroscopic labor recon and capsular shift, uh, under the scope. So interesting, when, when you review the history of treatment of a multi-directional instability uh, or with the, uh, uh, with the uh, part of the uh, uh, posterior instability as a part of the MDIs, it does not change a lot for the last 40 years when Dr. Charles Neer publishes uh, his article in the JBDS. So the operative goal is like, this listed here is a labral buildup. And uh, if there's a labral tear or labral lesion, you got to repair the labrum. And you have to do the reduction of your whole capsular volume. And then very importantly, you need to balancing your capsular tension pretty meticulously. So this is the, uh, uh, in my early years, I, I followed the, like the Dr. Neer's method of open capsular shift. So unlike uh, 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 Dr. Giacomo, I do a, a glenoid-based uh, uh, glenoid T-shape to do the, uh, the posterior application of, of the uh, posterior capsule. And um, I've done that quite a, for quite a while until I, I, I found out that the astroscopic approach may get more easier and uh, you've got a better vision as Ivan said. The major uh, goal when you do an astroscopic treatment is the same, reduce the intraarticular volume, balancing the tension. So usually you need to, to do the labor repair and the, we, we call uh, the tuck, tuck and uh, like, 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 like uh, how to say that, that um, 
you're doing twice one stitch on the capsule and then go through the labrum. So you tuck all, both the capsule and the labrum up back to the glenoid. Sometimes you need three on the back, sometimes you need two on the back, and also you need two or three stitches on the interior. And that is very important. You get that very two important point, like 530 point and 630 point. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 630 point to get, the, get, back, get back the hammocks of the inferior, inferior capsule. So for the uh, posterior instability combining within the MDI, there always be an inferior part. So you have to pay attention not only the posterior part and also the inferior and the anterior part. Another uh, controversial point about the plication uh, of your capsule during the repair is that whether you should plicate it to, through an anchor on, on, on the rim of the glenoid or you just pass through the, the application through the capsule and then to the labrum. There are different, you know, also reports said that, that they have a pros and cons. And my point is that it depends on the major directions. Like we say, a posterior instability is the major complaint of the patient in an MDI situation. I will do my labor recon and application through a, a, a definite, a very finite anchor in the glenoid that made me feel more safe to do the reconstruction. And then when I doing the anterior application and repair, it depends on the preoperative uh, uh, physical examination. And if there's a large or a very prominent anterior translation, I will also uh, do my application repair through an anchor. And if it's only of a minor anterior, anterior migration, I might I do application through the labor. It also depends on the quality of the labor. Sometimes when you do the plication through the labrum, when you're tying the knots, it just rip off the labrum. You got very poor labrum quality. So it depends, both preoperatively physical examination and intraoperatively uh, judgment of the quality of the labrum. And the post op rehab is pretty similar. I put this patient in a, in a neutral or a slightly uh, external rotation brace for about six weeks, at least six weeks. I do not worry about these kind of patients. They never stiffen up. So within about one or two months, or at most three months rehab, these patients can regain pretty well about renal motion preoperatively. And these patients are not allowed uh, to, to a, a competitive sports activities until about seven or eight months after surgery. About the results, when you look into the literatures that you can find very few that case series that can be found in such kind of patients because as I said, the MDI patient, the surgery is not the number one pick or the number one uh, recommended uh, uh, treatment option for these kind of patients. The results are pretty variable. And uh, when you're looking into the case series, uh, the case numbers are limited and they're lacking of a long-term results. And also, when you look at it closely to the, this kind of literatures, they have heterogeneous pathologies. Some, some, some sources have unidirectional, they combine unidirectional together with the uh, MDI with a, a posterior part together. So it's very hard to tell. What I'm going to you know, share with my experience is that uh, these are the common pitfalls in the treatment. Sometimes it's wrong indication. If you've got a voluntary uh, uh, dislocated uh, young girls, it's not a very good, uh, good indication for that. And also Ehlers Danlos, you can have high complication rate. And also another common pitfall is that you fail to appreciate all involved directions. You only find the patient have a posterior 
uh, direct instability, but you just omitted his inferior or, or even anterior, you know, migrations or instabilities, pathological conditions, and then you will create a iatrogenic uh, anterior or inferior uh, or instability after the surgery. And number three, the common pitfall is the failure to correct all lesions. As I said, that you have to reduce the capsular, capsular volume. So you not only re reconstruct the labrum, but you have to do the plication to reduce the volume. If it doesn't do that, then you will have a high recurrence rate. And lastly, is the asymmetric over tightening. That means that you're not tightening up the, the posterior anterior in a really neat way or meticulous way. And also you can have a chance or risk to produce a, a iatrogenic instability after the surgery. And also, a failed MDI surgery is a nightmare. I met two patients, and this really gave me a hard time on that. You got a very little chance to bail out these kind of patients, and especially for those painful instabilities, it's really, really painful, not only for the patient, but also for the surgeon. So remember that when you choose surgery, you gotta be very careful with the indications. And if you fail, you have very little chance to bail out. So in conclusion, I think for the uh, posterior instability as a part of the MDIs, the preoperative diagnosis is very critical. Not only you adjust the directions, but also you have to, to judge that how, how, how much extent of each direction of the, uh, the instability uh, have uh, before the surgery. And for me, I think physical examination is even more useful than a radiologist. You, of course, you can do an MRI, you can see the pathologist, but I think that all artifact evidences. I will trust physical examination as number one evidence when I'm doing the diagnosis. And for these kind of patients, always rehab first. Give them about six to, uh, three to six months to see whether they can improve their uh, conditions. And you gotta be aware of uh, voluntary and collagen disease. These are already rare, but not that rare. And these kind of patients is not a good indication for surgery. And if you finally decided to do the surgery, always keep in mind, strict indication control, and it might have a high, higher complication or recurrence rate. And if you have a failed MDI surgery, you're, you gotta get in very deep trouble. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chen Yan, um, for bringing up this very difficult uh, problems. Um, I pretty much agree with you that uh, probably the uh, the concept for understanding the disease, the physical physical examinations is much more important than the than the investigation and even the surgicals, right? So, um, so uh, all the gentlemen, uh, first of all, we we I would like all the panelists to switch on your. Uh, camera and also your microphone. So we are going to the Q&A sections. Uh, I've get a lot of questions from the Q&A box. I try to summarize and pick up some important questions for you guys, right? Um, I will throw out some questions, but I will probably I will ask a particular one of the particular uh, panelists to answer the questions. But for the others, feel free to add on your opinions, right? So for Gilmore, right? So I think uh, quite a number of um, uh, audience asked about whether you do a when will you do a posterior capsular application after your posterior labral repair? Uh, Patrick is a very good question. I, I think that this uh, tripolar uh, challenge, the 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 labrum, 
the uh, bone, uh, the, uh, the labrum of the capsule, the bone, and the sport. I, I, I think the posterior capsule is always uh, very weak. So even though uh, we repair the labrum, we always try to close the, the, the portal. It's a big portal. It's an eight millimeter cannula portal. So I think it's an important step of the procedure. And where there is any other uh, laxity, we applicate the posterior inferior capsule uh, in that okay. way. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, concise and precise answer, right? Good. So for China Khan, right? Um, yes. Some uh, audience asked about um, if there's any way of this humeral bone defect uh, grafting done under arthroscopically. And what is your rehabilitation plan, even you do it like an opening? Right? Well, uh, to open, uh, do it arthroscopic for the bone block, I had never tried for, for the humerus, but you know, to do the atroscopic uh, McLaughlin, I think is is pretty straightforward, right? Uh, just like the uh, Lemprisage. But to be honest, I have no experience doing the the bone block uh, atroscopically uh, with the uh, humeral on the humeral head. And any panelists do this? Or no, no, never heard of that, right? So, how about your rehabilitation plan, Chanakan? Uh, well, of course, we we uh, we fix the posterior labral. I think the the Pretty much like uh, we repair the subscaps. So I limit abduction on the uh, like to uh, about 45, uh, 45 degrees for the first three weeks. And then gradually uh, abduction more and more to stretch the, uh, the, uh, the subscapularis. I will uh, limit like external rotation to, to, to prevent the uh, stretch of the subscapularis as well. That's uh, on the humor side, yes. Okay, thank you. So uh, questions for Giovanni and also Ivan, because you guys are doing the uh, bone grafting for the, um, the green noise. Now the first question for Giovanni, um, quite a number of uh, audience asked about, uh, about your open approach, right? Any precautions, especially on the auxiliary nerve, right? Yeah. Um, I try to explain that uh, one of the reasons I advise to make a split of the infraspinatus is because you are far from the quadrangular space. You know that uh, your reference point has to be the teres major. You have to remember that superiorly to the teres major, there is the axillary nerve, inferiorly there is the radial nerve. So you have um, uh, to stay far from these muscles. This is the main reason I make a split, like uh, anteriorly I do for uh, scapularis, I do a split in the infraspinatus. There is a, a small rafe that sometimes is not so easy to find, but it's very important that uh, if you find this rafe, you make a split horizontally and with the galpi, like anterior to the subscap, you can reach easily the posterior part of the capsule. So this is the safest way to stay far from the axillary nerve that run more inferiorly under the teres minor. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the tips, right? So, Ivan, um, some um, people ask about the, the, the way that you fix the graft. You know that for the, like the arthroscopic lattice jet or even um, uh, anterior bone grafting, people have been using those like the endo button or the tight group approach, right? So, yeah. you use screw, right? So, can it be done uh, for the posterior side? Yeah, so, so unfortunately for the posterior side, it won't be the same. I just have the 3D model. It makes it more clear when I do this. I do 3D models for all, all of these patients. So again, coming from the back, it would make a lot more sense going screws. You know, you can see how this would be very easy to do. 
But when you do a button technique from the front, so the guide is meant to go retrograde to be able to pull, a, pull the button in. So if you're actually putting a graph in, we either have to put the, the guide in posteriorly and try to hold it in, but it's actually angled at 15 degrees. So the graph will be at the wrong side. The second problem with that, of course, is you have to be able to retrieve the sutures from the other side. And with subscap and all the neurovascular structures in the very front, you'd actually have to do a complete release, cause a bank art tear to be able to do that. So ideally the fixation for this is something from the back, fully done with screws. Okay, good. So for both of you, Giovanni and Ivan, about the rehabilitation plan, especially like the brace in what kind of positions, right? So maybe Giovanni? Yes, no, I, I always uh, pay attention generally in posterior instability because uh, the reversal sucks. As I try to show you uh, during my video, you have always to think to the interplay between uh, the anterior uh, reverse heel sucks and the posterior bone loss. Internal rotation is very dangerous. After acute and chronic immobilization, always in a slight uh, external rotation. Sometimes uh, I am a little worried because in some hospitals where probably there is no huge experience in the treatment of posterior instability, after posterior instability, they make a, a, a reduction. They have a good reduction but they miss the, the immobilization. They put again the harm in internal rotation. So after the X-ray control, they have a new posterior dislocation. And uh, that is a nightmare. Okay, Ivan. Patrick, can I ask a question? Yeah. So yeah. my question for Ivan and uh, uh, Giovanni, because you, you, you guys show very uh, fantastic surgery with the bone blocks. So in my uh, limited experience, that the, the, the resorption of the uh, anterior instability when you use whether a, a coracoid or, or a free graft, the resorption rate is pretty high according to, to my uh, simplified classifications. But that is not the case for posterior one. Um, but I saw Ivan's cases that both your cases showed after the, uh, the, the fixation with the bony uh, fragment, there's quite a bit of a resorption at the follow-up that you can your, your total screw head is exposed and part of the shaft is exposed. So what's your experience, and also Giovanni's experience, on the bone resorptions for posterior bone block? Yeah, I yeah. have, personally, I have a, a large experience on uh, uh, anterior absorption of, uh, um, for example, after La Fagier technique, and we did uh, two or three uh, publications, two or three papers on the osteolysis. And the osteolysis is not a complication. Osteolysis of the absorption is a normal phenomenon and is due to the uh, wall flow. It means when, uh, for example, in anterior, but probably also in posterior instability, you have a huge glenoid bone loss. According to the wall view, you have a very good integration. If you have a minimal glenoid bone loss, uh, probably the absorption is very high. I had the possibility to follow hundreds of patients regarding the anterior instability, but I personally have very few uh, numbers following patients in the integration of the posterior bone block. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the posterior bone block is to behave very differently. For anterior bone block, you can never have an overhand of the graft, otherwise you're, you're, you're induced a very severe osteoarthritis. But with the posterior bone block, sometimes you can overhand quite a bit without any prominent uh, uh, osteoarthritis. So I, I, I guess, I mean, I doubt that might be different mechanisms uh, for these yeah. anterior and posterior bone blocks. So, so I completely agree with Giovanni. So, so Wolf's Law is a big part of this. 
Um, when I first started doing this, I thought that making a glenoid larger than a native glenoid is a good idea because you get more stability and that's true. But the body has a chance of resorbing. And resorbing, I think we're actually using the wrong words. It's actually remodeling, right? So it's not really just osteolysis, it's remodeling because the body remodels the bone that you put in. It has to revascularize that, that allograft or that autograft that you put in and it remodels according to what flow. If you get pressure on it, it will go that way. So this patient is the patient that um, um, had the uh, uh, fall immediately after. And you can see the graph that I put in. It's a rectangular shape, mainly because of the handle that I put in. Here are the two screws that are coming in. And at the final follow-up, about two years later, what happens is there's always remodeling. It rounds out. It, almost every CT I get will round out. So it'll come back to roughly here, and, rough, and this, this corner will be gone. And that's the remodel I get. When it rounds out here, you will see the screw shafts. Because right now you can see we're completely adjacent and abutted to the native glenoid. But it will round out to make this normal shape of the glenoid. This will come off this triangular piece here to expose the screw shafts below, but it will still have the surface support. So I really think we're asking the wrong question. It's not resorption, it's remodeling of the bone. And if there's bone there and there's good integration at the surface of the glenoid, we know that it's healing and it's doing the thing it's supposed to do. Okay, thanks, uh, Ivan, right? Um, so, um, Chen Yan, right? Um, another question, right? Indeed, you mentioned about that uh, in your presentation about the pitfalls of the management of the MDI. And it's, it's about uh, how to balance over tightening because for these MDI patients, as you mentioned, it's not just posterior, sometimes it's inferior and also sometimes anterior. How do you balance and how much to tighten? Posteriorly, inferior, and anterior, so much so that you are not overdone and cause troubles, right? Yeah, of course. As I said, that that's exactly why the surgery is not the number one pick for these kind of patients. So, as I said, it largely depends on the preoperative evaluation. All mm. these patients came in with the MDI, but they complain about posterior instability. So that is the major complaint. So you have, for me, I have to do the plication and reduce the posterior inferior pouch and volume pretty much. So the problem now is that how much you're gonna tighten anteriorly. And that is based on the preoperative evaluations. If the patient have a very uh, a prominent anterior uh, migration during the, uh, during the preoperative evaluation, I will do quite a bit of anterior plication too. But if the patient not only have a, a moderate or a very uh, a minimal amount of anterior uh, migration, but with the apprehension, that means it's pathological, then I would do maybe just one to 1.5 centimeter application, not as much as that. But for all these patients, I would do the inferior. I would do the anterior inferior band and anterior and posterior inferior band, like the hummock to get reduce the pouch. But all these posterior instability with the MDI, they always have an inferior part. So that, that's why balancing is the problem. And also these kind of patients, even though you're, you're tired of them pretty much, quite part of these kind of patients, they loosen up yeah. in about six months or a year. Not everybody, but quite part of it. So that is the dilemma for this kind of patient. The, the, the surgical outcome is not as you know, predictable as the anterior one in this kind of case scenarios. So probably the message is we need to think twice before we really, really want to operate on this kind of patients, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, me, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, gentlemen, right? Well, we, we come to the last questions. That's open to all because this is the most commonly asked questions in the QA boss is well, with posterior label tear instability with the reverse Hill Sash bone loss over the humeral head, right? 
So when will you consider, apart from fixing the posterior side, when will you consider to do something over the humeral head reverse to such lesion, like the McGraw-Green or even bone grafting? Any, any cut-off point? Well, we all, Giovanni mentioned about this delta angles and, and, and also and very much like the uh, bipolar concept, right? I think that one of the key points is uh, always to keep in mind in anterior and posterior instability, you ask for M MRI, a CT scan, and not always you need to make measure like we do for the, to write paper, but give a look on uh, immediately under the coracoid level on the axial view at the position of the heel sacs or at the extension of the heel sacs. Remember, in anterior and posterior instability, the more medial is the heel sacs, the more medial is the extension the heel sacs, the more danger you have to have bone instability. That's the reason I do the open MacLogging procedure. Okay, good. So any other comments? I think I think uh, Giovanni's uh, very uh, objective uh, uh, perimeter is very good. The the the, the gamma and and the, the, the data angles. And there's a very easy way. I mean, also eject our surgeons to, to decide during the surgery is that when you finish repairing, not finish, you're reapproaching the posterior capsule back to it. Then you internal rotate it. For me, if I internal rotation because I do a lot of decubitus. I get away with the traction and I do internal rotation up to 30 degrees inside. And if that reverse heel sac doesn't engage with the posterior labrum, I would not touch to any uh, McLaughlin. But if only with the neutral rotation, you can see that the posterior, uh, the anterior uh, reverse heel sac lesion got engaged to the posterior one, then I'll do a osteoscopic McLaughlin. Okay. That's a very simple, easy, forward, right? okay. yeah, simple, good. yeah, very simple judgment. Well, uh, uh, you want to say something? Yeah. yeah. In my hand, I, I believe besides the, the parameter that Giovanni that introduced, I think that's very important. And uh, uh, who's that? Sorry. Who's that? Tanakan. Ah, Tanakan. His wife. His wife. Sorry, sad Besides the parameter that Giovanni mentioned, I think clinically is very important. Um, most of my patients that I do the some form of the procedure on the humeral head, if the patient have history of unstable shoulder and lock dislocation like uh even sometimes i reduce the posterior label I, it felt like the the uh the lesion is not that engaged it's a slightly engaged i still do a repair I, a little bit overdue because uh you know i and i i finally it, it will stretch out until until i mean yeah like that good Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, gentlemen, uh, we have spent like uh, 100 minutes, right? So, very good uh, discussions and presentations. So, um, Gilmore, right? Anything to add? I would like to thank everybody. Thank you, Patrick, for organizing everything. Thank the uh, great faculty that we have and the attendance. Once again, I would like to invite you again to the ISACOS meeting. Uh, not this November, next November uh, 2021 in Cape Town, we will have the Isacos International flavor and we will be happy to see you uh, and a big toast uh, after this very tough year. Thank you yeah. all. So um, I would just like to um, let all the audience and the panelists know that uh, the whole webinars will be posted on the ISA course as well as the EPCAS uh, webpage. 
so that everybody to, can come back to reviews and this uh, 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 beautiful and excellent um, presentations and discussions. So Michael, can you put up the slides of the APCAS conference, right? I just want to let all of you know about the upcoming two important <laughs> meetings. For APCAS, um, we are still, uh, you know, hope that we can run this conference and the chairman, China Khan is here, right? Uh, to run the EPCAS uh, 2020 conference in Thailand, Pattaya, very close to Bangkok, in December this year. So please mark your diary. Um, um, we are confident that we can do that. And very importantly, next year, as uh, Gurumor has mentioned, the, about the ISACOS conference, right? Next night, uh, Michael, please. Yeah. Yes, about the ISACOS Congress in uh, November to December in Cape Town, South Africa. I'm pretty sure by that time, we'll all be able to travel around and meet one uh, all of you, all the good friends together, right? So last but not the least, and on behalf of EPCAS uh, and ISACOS, I would like to thank all the panelists, Chen Yan, Gilmore, Ivan, Giovanni, and Chana Khan for um, contributing for the success of this webinar. And um, we'll keep on to work, EPCAS uh, will keep on to work with uh, ISACOS to run more webinars, to, to share our knowledge and, uh, with, and meet all the friends around the world in sports medicine. So good night, goodbye, take care, stay well stay and healthy. Safe. Stay safe, Thank everybody. You. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Bye. everybody. Bye. Stay well. Stay well. Thank you. Stay well. Thank you very much. Oh.